Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Do you know what time it is? Well, of course you do. It's Wednesday, November 9th, and it's time for your midweek Bible study. It's great to be with you once again. Thanks for joining us. I'm sorry I wasn't available last week. I had a minor medical issue that I had to deal with, but I am back, and I'm excited because we get to continue in our study of the book of James. Last time when we met, it was in the second half of chapter one that James encouraged us to put our beliefs into practice. Today, we're going to look at chapter two, verses one to 13, and it's half of that first chapter. It's gonna be kind of a short study, but it's packed with some great information. In fact, James gives a very practical lesson to us today, and it can be summed up this way. We are not to show favoritism. This kind of discrimination, it violates God's truth. And yes, it's called discrimination, as you'll find out shortly. James takes it for granted that the believers in the church will welcome strangers, but he's urging them to be alert about the way that they welcome strangers into the church. He doesn't want the warmth or honor of the welcome to be determined by the status or apparent wealth of the visitor. What James condemns is showing favoritism based on social standing. In fact, he makes it a cause for questioning the reality of a person's faith. And so the title for today's study is Don't Favor the Rich. It's going to be a great journey, but before we get started, as always, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you, we celebrate you, and we thank you because you alone are God. We are so thankful for your word. Lord, teach us today in the second chapter of James what it really means for us to understand favoritism and why it's not a Christian characteristic in any way, shape, or form, and why, in fact, it's even a sin, and you call it that. We're going to find out more about that, so open our hearts to receive this today. In Jesus' name, then everyone said, Amen and Amen. Turn in your Bible or Bible apps to James chapter 2, starting with verse 1, and let's read the passage for today. Starting with verse 1, here it is. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some other people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone, but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Amen to the reading of his word. All right, let's dig in. Here we go. Verse one, it reads, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Our first question today is this. Who is James writing to and on what basis is he writing? Well, he's writing to the brothers and sisters who were members of the church and his family in the Christian faith. 
The family relationship he's describing here is limited to those who have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that in the verse? Because of their shared position as believers, James' readers were to follow the instructions he was about to give them. Now, the believers receiving this letter had already been guilty of something. What was it? They were guilty of showing favor to some people more over others. That's what the verse said. The believers apparently were judging people based on externals, things like physical appearance, status, wealth, and power. And as a result, they gave into and were unnecessarily influenced by people who represented these positions of prestige. James' command remains important for churches today. Often we treat a well-dressed, impressive-looking person better than someone who looks poor. It's just the way it is sometimes. We do this because we would rather identify with successful people than apparent failures. James reminds us the irony is that the supposed winners may have gained their impressive lifestyle at our own expense. Our churches should show no partiality with regard to people's outward appearance, wealth, or power. The law of love must rule all of our attitudes toward others. Too often, a church brushes aside the suggestions of its more humble and poorer members in favor of those ideas of the wealthy. That kind of discrimination, it's got no place in our churches. Next verses 2 and 3, they read, For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Let's end the verse right there. Here's the question. In these verses, James launches into a vivid hypothetical case study to illustrate what he said in the previous verse. What does he say? Well, he says that two men were entering a church gathering. We can assume that these men were visiting, that they were only described by appearance. One was rich, as he dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. The other was dressed in dirty clothes, it says. In this scenario, the rich man was given special attention and a good seat. The believers were so impressed by him, he became the object of special service and respect. But the poor man, he was told, hey, go stand over there or else sit on the floor. In other words, he's not given even any dignity or comfort at all. James speaks out against this. It's our relationship with Christ that gives us dignity, not our profession or possessions. When we gather for worship, we ought to be conscious that even if we're familiar with everyone in the room, Christ is present. If there are two or three of us gathered in his name, there he is in our midst, Matthew 18, 20. Before we worship, we ought to recognize Christ's presence. Can we not assume that he follows his own advice? When Jesus meets with us, does he assume a place of honor or jostle for our attention? Or should we imagine that Jesus takes the place of deepest humility among us and waits to be recognized as Lord? When we neglect or ignore the poor or powerless, we are also ignoring Jesus Christ. Next at verse 4, it continues from the previous verses. It says, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Here's the question. In conclusion of the previous two verses, in the form of a question, James states that this kind of favoritism is deeply sinful. In fact, he calls it discrimination. What else does he say about that kind of behavior? He says that such discrimination shows that the believer's judgment is, do you see this, guided by evil motives. James condemned their behavior because Christ had made them all one, Galatians 3.28. Why is it wrong to judge a person by his or her economic status? Wealth may indicate intelligence, wise decisions, and hard work, but on the other hand, it may mean only that a person has had good fortune of being born into a wealthy family. Or it can even mean a sign of greed or dishonesty, maybe even selfishness. When we honor someone just because he or she dresses well, we make appearance more important than character. 
Another false assumption that sometimes influences our treatment of the rich is our misunderstanding of God's relationship to wealth. It's deceptively easy to believe riches are a sign of God's blessing and approval. But God does not promise us earthly riches or rewards. In fact, Christ calls us to be ready to suffer for him and give up everything in order to hold on to eternal life. We'll have untold riches in eternity if we're faithful in our present life. I would encourage you to read Luke 6.35, John 12, verses 23 through 25, Galatians 6, 7 through 10, and Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Verse 5 is next. It reads, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Here's our question. What does James say about the poor in this verse? Well, as you know, Jesus' first followers were common people. God chose, it says, the poor people in this world to be rich in faith. Christianity has a special message for the poor. In a social system that gave the poor very little, Jesus' message to them was certainly good news. The poor may not have mattered in that society, but they mattered very much to God. In fact, God promised them that they will inherit the kingdom. That's what it says in the verse. The poverty of poor believers is only poverty in the eyes of the world, but they are rich in faith and will inherit the kingdom. The rich are not excluded from the kingdom, just as the poor are chosen because of their poverty. Rich or poor, believers must obey God and love him. That is key. This could be called the heart of James's message. If we really love God, both our faith in him and our obedience to him will be right. We'll not belittle anyone with whom we share a common inheritance. Next, verses 6 and 7, they read, But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? The question is, James continues his discourse about how the believers were oppressing the poor. What does he say here in these verses? These believers dishonor the poor because they were not treating them as God treats them. James showed how evil their actions were by making three observations. Here's the first. It is the rich who oppresses others. In this society, the rich oppress the poor. In James' original case, back in verses 2 through 4, the case study we just read, both the rich person and the poor person were probably visitors to the church, and whether they were believers or not wasn't yet known. So how wrong is it to fawn over this rich person who might not be a believer and ignore the poor person who might be a believer? Second, the rich typically showed no mercy or concern for the poor. They would take the poor into court, most likely for not repaying a debt. Wealthy money lenders often took advantage of the poor. In fact, if a creditor met the debtor on the street, he could literally grab him and drag him into court right then and there. But economic persecution was not the only oppression these believers faced from the wealthy. James' third observation focuses on religious persecution. These rich people are the ones who slandered Jesus Christ, he says, either by speaking evil of him or by insulting Christians. James pointed out the irony that Christians would show favoritism to those who were known to slander Jesus Christ. Gosh, that sounds familiar, folks, because I've seen that happen even today. And we need to be aware of that and stand up against it. Verse 8 says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here James takes his argument to another level. What does he say about the royal law and what does it mean? I think we all know love is the source from which our attitudes toward others should flow. This royal command is a law from the king of kings himself. Matthew 22 verses 37 to 40 say, 
Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. In the Old Testament, one's neighbor would be a fellow Israelite, but Jesus' application here included everyone from whom we might come into contact with. James was calling his readers to obey the royal law of love that would forbid them to discriminate against anyone who entered their fellowship. In other words, we're to show favor to everyone, whether the person is rich or poor. We're to be kind, overlooking other superficial trappings. Next is verse 9. It says, But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. The question is, what does James call it when a person displays favoritism? What are they guilty of? Showing favor to some people over others is not some minor transgression. It's not some unfortunate oversight, beloved. According to James, it is a sin, and those engaged in this action are guilty, as it said, of breaking the law. Discrimination against anyone on the basis of dress, race, social class, wealth, sex, etc. is a clear violation of the royal law of love. We must treat all people as we would want to be treated. Our attitudes and actions toward others should be guided by love. Verse 10 is next. It says, For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Why then is a person who commits one sin as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws? James's point here is that no matter what commandment someone breaks, that person is guilty of an offense against God. He or she has violated the will of God. We can't excuse the sin of favoritism by pointing to the rest of the good that we do. Sin is not simply balanced against good. It must be confessed. It must be forgiven. If we've broken just one law, we are sinners. We can't decide to keep part of God's law and simply ignore the rest. Verse 11 continues. It says, For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. In this verse, James drives home the point from verse 10 with some specifics. What is his overall message here? James says that the law is a unit, and to break one law is to become guilty of the entire law. Jewish theologians of the day would have disagreed with James, saying some Jews were quote-unquote light and some heavy, meaning that breaking some was not as serious as breaking others. It might seem that stumbling on the act of showing favoritism is breaking one of those least commandments, not nearly as bad as adultery or murder. But God's law was not written with heavy and light commands so that obedience to some outweighed obedience to others. Believers are called to consistent obedience, period. Verse 12 is next. It says, So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. Here's our question. On what basis will we be judged? Continuing the thought from the previous verse, obedience must be a lifestyle. It should be a habit in whatever you say or whatever you do. That's what the verse says. In other words, this covers all human behavior. The believers would be judged on the basis of their obedience to God's will as expressed in his law. Although God has accepted those who believe in him, we're still called to obey him. But his law is not a burden. Instead, it sets us free because we are obeying out of joy. We are grateful that God has given us freedom from sin's penalty and the Spirit to empower us to do his will. Glory to God, that's good news. And now here's our last verse for today, verse 13. It says, There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. 
But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Here's the last question of the day. What does James say will happen to people who have shown no mercy? Mercy is precisely what the believers were not showing when they insulted poor people. If they continued to discriminate, they would be in danger of facing their own judgment without mercy. This is an excellent statement of New Testament ethics. What we do to others, we actually do to God, and he returns it upon our hearts. We stand before God in need of his mercy. When we withhold forgiveness from others after having received it ourselves, we show that we don't understand or even appreciate God's mercy toward us. Not showing mercy places us under God's judgment, but showing mercy places us under his mercy as well as his judgment. We will always deserve God's judgment because we can never adequately obey God's royal law. But our merciful actions are evidence of our relationship with Christ. And it is that relationship that frees us. We stand before God from whom we know we deserve judgment and upon whom we are now depending for mercy. Because of God's character, God will be merciful when he judges you. That's how the verse ends. The world is looking for evidence that God is merciful. Being people who have experienced mercy and who express mercy will definitely catch their attention. Well, folks, this has been a short study today, but it has been cram full of this amazing idea of favoritism and how sinful and discriminatory it can be. I hope this has been a joy for you and encouragement for you. Hope you'll go back and re-listen or re-watch the video again so that you can catch up on all of the points. We're going to continue in chapter 2 next time we're together. Next week, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And we're going to find out what the phrase, faith results in good works, really means. Thanks for being with me today. It's great to be back with you. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.